Tonight, I want to pick up a very curious story. It's the story of Shabtai Tzvi and its consequences. I want to begin with just one remark, uh, not specifically on Shabtai Tzvi, but a broader kind, to put it in a context. And that is, tonight we're going to talk about, obviously, aspects of Messianism. This is not the occasion to give a lecture on Messianism. And some of you actually have suffered through such a lecture while I'm here already. But the fact is, for those of you who are not familiar with it and who may find it strange, you should know that Messianism is the continual phenomenon of Jewish history. And in every century, there are Messianic pretenders. Almost every century, there are more than one. And the fact that there are so many Messianic pretenders century by century is an indication how important Messianism is. If Messianism were unimportant, you wouldn't have Messianic pretenders. Nobody would be interested. But the fact that in every century, even in de every decade almost, in some parts of the Arab world, for example, in the Middle Ages, you had movements, and in Yemen and in, Saudi, in uh, Iran had always many, many uh, pseudo-messiahs like they have today. And uh, the fact is, Messianism is the fundamental doctrine, the absolutely bedrock doctrine in some way of Jewish life. And therefore, it's not surprising that it should explode on occasion in our study of mysticism, especially when, after the last class, you saw that Luriana Kabbalah did something very important and very interesting. It wedded together the mystical and the messianic to give both a new urgency. The mystical was transformed from an individualistic kind of experience of my own mystical experience, my own salvation, my own meeting with God, my own transport to the world above, into a communal experience, trying to redeem the people of Israel after the Spanish exile, after the 1492. And Messianism also was reformed according to the teachings of Lurianic Kabbalah. Let me just remind you very briefly of the principle of Luriana Kabbalah that we want to concentrate on, namely that it is the collective job of the Jewish people to lift the sparks of holiness, the nitzatzot as they're called, that are imprisoned in matter called klipot, shells, and to redeem them so they are restored once freed to the world above and they restore the harmony in the world above, which is called tikkun unification, repair. Now, let's look where we are going tonight. The 17th century, remember Shabtai Tzvi is a 17th century phenomenon, Luria a 16th century phenomena, Luria's dates are 1534 to 1572, he died at 38. And in the century that was to come after the death of Luria, a lot of things happened. And they set a context that you should always appreciate, because ideas, of course, are contextual. They influence inherited doctrines. First of all, you need to know that the Jewish community, especially in Poland, was growing in this period. Jews had been welcomed into Poland in the 16th century by Sigismund I, and then his son Sigismund II, and his son Sigismund III. And the Jews had come fleeing Spain through Italy, through the Ottoman Empire, and from Germany, from Ashkenaz, into Poland. 
and they started to settle in the main communities, especially in Krakow. You all have been, I assume, to Krakow, you know, in Kazimierz, the old synagogue where the Ramah was, Mosisilis, the uh, person who edited the Shulchan Aruch for Eastern European Jews, a very great center in Krakow. But it did not go so well in Krakow after the 16th century. In the 17th century, things started to decline. And they started to decline in part because the kings started to be a weak dynasty. Wherever Jews live with strong kings, they do better because the kings keep a lid on the controlling anti-Semitism and the other factional factors. When you have weak kings, then other parts of the social order want to assert themselves, often at the expense of the Jews. And remember, the Jews are only allowed to stay because the kings give them a privilege. If you've ever seen uh, in a Jewish museum what's called a shtar, a shtar is a contract literally a document. It's a contract that the Jewish community makes with the king, and in that he sets specifications. 300 people can live here, they can be engaged in the following activities, they have to pay the so many taxes, they can build a synagogue or a cemetery, whatever it is. They set it all out in legal form. So that the king is very important to the Jews, and when kings are strong, Jews do well as a rule. <coughs> Excuse me, I caught a cold in sunny California. Now when that uh, weak king comes to the throne, when those kings come, uh, the genie comes out of the bottle of anti-Semitism, though the word anti-Semitism, as you all know, is a 19th century word. It's really should be called anti-Judaism. The word anti-Semitism only came into being in 1870. And it came in two forms. First of all, you start to get, in many places in Poland, the blood libel. Do all of you know what the blood libel is? So the blood libel becomes a terrible phenomenon because all the Jewish communities are frightened that at any moment, those of you who don't know, the blood libel is the charge that Jews steal Christian children and use their blood for making matzah or other ritual purposes. And uh, the charge began in the 13th century and it continued into the modern period. You know, Dishtuma, the Nazi program, always featured blood libels on its cover, and even in the United States. In 1928, I think it was, in Messina, New York, a child disappeared and the police came to the rabbi and asked if they had stolen his blood. And uh, it's a charge recently in the Arab world. You know, they made that 50-part or whatever it was TV series called the, something like the Leaven of, Ma of Matzah about the blood libel that played all over the Arab world last year during Ramadan. So this is a very, very potent charge because just think, someone is going to come and steal your children, right? What could be more emotional than that? The idea that these aliens are going to be carnivores, going to be destructive and take your children and dismember them and take their blood and use it for ritual purposes. And even though the Vatican always defended the Jews, consistently defended the Jews for 800 years, the fact is the charge continues to recycle in Christian imagination. It's a very terrible thing. So the blood libel starts to be unleashed in Poland with significant results of anxiety and with pogroms and with violence. And then that culminates in a more dramatic event in 1648-49 in the famous uprising of the uh, Ukrainian national hero, Bodin Khmelnytska. Do all of you know Bodin Khmelnytska? Is there anybody who doesn't know Bodin Khmelnytska? 
Good, I'm glad you all know. Uh, <laughs> the fact is that Chmitska is uh, very famous. If you go to the Ukraine, not something I recommend, except maybe as a Lenten exercise, but if you go to the, to the Ukraine, in every square, you'll see a statue of Khmelnytska. Khmelnytska is the George Washington of Ukrainian nationalism. And in 1648, he rose up to throw out the Russian overlords. Russia controlled the Ukraine. And he wanted to get rid of the Russians. But who, of course, were the intermediaries between the Russians and the local people, the tax collectors, the Jews? And so he seized upon the Jews, and he murdered thousands of Jews in the Ukraine. It was the largest pogrom in the history of Eastern Europe until the Holocaust. So the Eastern European Jewish Center, which you see in the time of Luria and in the 16th century, looked like it was going to be, as we would say in America, the Golden of Medina, the Golden Land. And that's how it was referred to, actually, in different ways in 17th and early 18th century Polish Jewish literature, became already a necropolis by the middle of the 17th century. Right? large-scale Jewish violence. And that would continue with the Hadamax, where you'd continue to have pogroms all the way up to the end of the 19th century. So on the outside, when I say outside, I mean externally, Jewish life in the 17th century was very, very tense, very anxious, very fractured, very difficult. Secondly, when you have that kind of disability, that kind of chaos, there was chaos inside, because Jewish communities require a certain kind of stability. You just think to yourself, take this beautiful building, right? You have a school here. You, however, cannot send children to school if there's violence, if there's chaos. And you can't certainly send them to school for 12 years through the high school years, and then another four years through the college years, and then if they want to go on to study. So just think in terms of rabbinic culture. If you want to produce rabbinic leadership, which was the traditional leadership, you have to have a certain kind of stability because rabbis can't be produced, you know, like instant mashed potato, pour a little in with the water and you, you get it. Even rabbis for dummies takes some time. So the fact is that this phenomenon meant that the internal Jewish community, sociologically speaking, in terms of leadership, in terms of stability, in terms of its financial economic conditions was not in good shape. And so you have a Jewish community on the outside and on the inside, you might say sociologically under duress. The third category, the third issue that we need to mention, of course, is Lurianic Kabbalah. Now, Lurianic Kabbalah, which we talked about last time, I don't have to repeat myself in terms of the content. Let me just say that it made a very dramatic spread by the end of the 16th century, we already have, for example, prayer books published in Italy, which was a center of Jewish publishing, as you know, at that time, at the late Renaissance period. And they already include L'Chor Dodi. Now, I know my friend uh, Reuven Kimmelman was here last year, and I'm sure all he talked about was L'Chor Dodi. That's one of his favorite themes. So you were all an expert on L'Chor Dodi. You know, does everybody know what L'Chor Dodi is? Welcome the Bride on Friday night created in Sfat in the 16th century by Shlomo Alkabetz, one of the circle of Isaac Luria. Now, this spread of Lurianic Kabbalah was, on the one hand, a very good thing. It brought a kind of inspiration to the Jewish people. It brought the Jewish people hope and solace. It reinforced their dignity. But on the other hand, it gave, in light of the other breakdowns in the inside and the outside sociologically, an urgency to Messianism. Right? It's not that we want the Messiah someday. 
I'm sure if the Messiah came to Orange County and blew the chauffeur and said, let's go to Eretz Israel, at least half of you would say, you're happy where you are. <laughs> right? I mean, I've been riding around Orange County. I know. They're not going to leave Laguna Beach. Viviana's going to go follow the Mashiach to Jerusalem. She's going to stay in Laguna Beach. Are you kidding? So the fact is that we'd only get 50% of the Jewish people in Eretz Israel. When things are difficult, when there's a terrible crisis, when times are bad, and the urgency has been encouraged by messianism in the Lurianic form, you have great expectations. You see people writing books at the beginning of the 17th century, spreading the doctrine, as I mentioned to you last time, the Magidim, the traveling uh, preachers were spreading the doctrine. One of my wife's ancestors named uh, Isaiah Horowitz, the Shilah Kodesh, wrote a famous book called Shnei Luchot Brit, Two Tablets of the Law that brought the doctrine to Poland. And the fact is that this was a very dramatic moment, that the people were yearning for the Messiah. And they had good reason. Things were really difficult. Also, of course, there were long-standing beliefs. In the Middle Ages, a book had been published called Sefer Zerubbabel. And those of you who know something of classical Jewish history know Zerubbabel was the last Jewish leader who was murdered by the Persians during the period of the return from Babylonia because there was already speculation that he was a messiah. In rabbinic literature, there are people who, when they discuss the messiah, said the messiah came in the time of Zerubbabel. So we have a biography, Zerubbabel, Ken. And you have a, you have a biography of the messiah, something like in Christian literature where the biography of the Messiah for Christians is all the Hebrew prophecies. So you have all the rabbinic traditions made into a biography. You even have a prophecy that there will come a Messiah named Shabtai. Very curious. A prophecy and that he will be born under the astrological sign of Saturn. That's one of the medieval messianic doctrines. Now I tell you all this by way of prolegomena only to introduce the subject. You have to realize that the ideas that we're going to talk about don't take place in a vacuum. They take place in a real time, in a real uh, experiential context where people have very urgent necessities. And these come to a climax in the life and the uh, movement and uh, afterlife of a man named Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi was born in 1626, roughly 50 years after the death of Luria. By tradition, and it may well be true, that he was born on Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av. You all know that is the day which commemorates in Jewish life the destruction of both the first temple and the second temple. And then later years, the rabbis added other events. For example, they said the expulsion from Spain took place on Tisha B'Av. It was close enough for them to make the claim, though actually the date was a few days different. It was July 31, 1492. He was born into a wealthy family in Smyrna. Smyrna was in the Ottoman Empire. That is today, those of you who have traveled in Turkey or in uh, the Ottoman Empire, you know that today is Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R. Has anybody been there? Any? So you know Izmir still has a Jewish community, has three or four very beautiful old synagogues, and it was a large Jewish community until the 20th century when most of the Jews left for Israel and depleted uh, the resources. He was a precocious student, and as was common in uh, many families, he had older brothers who went into the business, 
And he was sort of being groomed to be a sage, to be a Talmud Chacham, to be a rabbi. Just like in Catholic, old Irish Catholic families, you used to always have one daughter was for the church, right? The older children would uh, do whatever they did. Uh, they're Irish, they'd have a bar. And uh, the one daughter would be a nun. In Jewish life, it was the same thing. The older boys would go in the family business, shmatas, whatever it was, and then the youngest would be a rabbi. He was a precocious student. I think there's no doubt that everyone who knew him saw in him a special gift. At 15, he began to study Kabbalah. And here, if you ever need evidence for the wisdom of the rabbis who said in Chagiga, in the Talmud in Chagiga, you should not start the study of Kabbalah till age 40, you have it in the life of Shabtai Tzvi. He starts to seclude himself, as is the custom of Kabbalists, to, to separate themselves off, to live in seclusion. And the tradition is he lived in seclusion for a number of years, making ascetic practices his daily ritual, not fasting, beating himself, all kinds of uh, ascetic practices. Normative Judaism, normative rabbinic Judaism, is opposed to asceticism. The mystical tradition, however, has an ascetic quality to it. They borrow it from all kinds of places, and they're so deeply concerned with spiritual matters that they feel that the body is in the way. They clearly are influenced by Greek philosophy, by Greek Neoplatonism especially, if they live among Christians, by Christian mysticism, Sufis, and they take on an ascetic. They avoid sexuality, they avoid eating, they avoid sleeping, they uh, seclude themselves, uh, they don't eat food made by others because it might be polluted. Uh, they don't eat certain vegetables because it gives you gas and it makes, therefore, you polluted if you give off gas. I mean, all kinds of very curious things. So there is a, this minority tradition among the mystics. It goes all the way back to the time of the rabbis, which is ascetic. Very long tradition. For six years, he follows this ascetic regimen. And in 1648, he comes out of this and he begins, right, 1648, he's already 22 years old. He begins to do a couple of things that are very strange. He starts to manifest manic depressive symptoms. He's either very elated, excited, buoyant, or he's very depressed, very, very down. Now, it's interesting, and his own disciples, of course, later on, when he continues to manifest these symptoms his entire life, if you are the Messiah, everything you do has mystical significance, right? It's not just psychology. This is a spiritual phenomenon. And they called these actions ma'asim zarim, which means strange actions, by which they meant strange actions that had metaphysical significance. I'll explain it to you when we come to that, okay? But he already does this as a young man. And in these moods, he does very strange things. According to tradition, already in his teens and in his early 20s, he does two strange things that worry people. The first is he starts to pronounce the name of God as it's written. You know, in Hebrew, the tetragrammaton, the four-lettered name of God, is not pronounced as it's written. And the tradition is that only on Yom Kippur, the high priest would pronounce the name as it's written. And when all of you go to Shul on Yom Kippur, you know we now 
three times in our Muslim service, we say, and the high priest pronounced the name, and the people fell on their floor and said, have any of you been to a synagogue on Yom Kippur? What'd they say? Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto, blessed is the name of the Lord. Three times we fall on the ground. Today it's customary outside of very traditional circles just for the, for the cantor to fall uh, on the ground once, right? You know the story of the cantor. Avi's not here, I can tell you. The, the rabbi and the, the cantor, the rabbi, is Marsha here? Where's Marsha? Oh, so Marsha liked this story. The, Marsha, come, sit up here, sit. Even though you, you fed me squash, you can sit here. You can come sit here. Never go to dinner at Marsha's, but she's a wonderful woman. Sit here. The, the rabbi falls down on the Day of Atonement, and he says, Rabboni Shalom, oi, 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 Rabboni Shalom, how can I be before you? How can I represent the congregation? I'm a garnished. So the chazan, not to be outdone, falls on the ground and says, oi, 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 Rabboni Shalom, how can I do this? I'm a garnished. And then the shamus, not to be outdone, falls on the ground and says, oi, 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 Rabboni Shalom, how can I be the shamus for this wonderful congregation? I'm a garnished. And the rabbi and the chazan turn to him and say, who are you to be a garnished? So... <laughs> So the fact is, you see, this uh, phenomenon of saying the name of God is a radical thing. To say the name of God is to transcend, to violate a very ancient prescription. The second thing he did, which was more unusual uh, in, in actuality, though it didn't have the pedigree, was he started to dance in a kind of erotic way with the Sefer Torah on the day of Simchat Torah and other times during the year. Now this is the notion that the Sefer Torah was the female Shekhinah, somehow the female presence of God, and he was having some kind of ecstatic, sexual, erotic relationship. Now you can imagine that uh, this made people worry. And in addition, there were two other things that made people worry. He married twice in his late teens and early 20s and neither was consummated and therefore they were dissolved. At that time, which is still the custom today, I'm sure, as you all know, it was customary for boys to marry about 18, 17, 18, for girls to marry even younger in the very orthodox community. And especially in this time, people did it, not only for the practical reason that a boy of 18 or 19 is sexually mature, so you want to have licit channels for sexuality, otherwise you get Venice Beach, and the other thing is, you had, a, because of the political chaos, people were worried they wouldn't have dowries. So if you saved the dowry and then there was a pogrom, the dowry could disappear, right? So the quicker you married off your daughter, the quicker you had the dowry was safe and the daughter was, was safely married. Now, this was very odd. Two failed marriages for non-consummation, erotic gestures with the Sefer Torah, and odd pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton, all came to a public crisis, you might say. And therefore, about 1651, when he was uh, close to 25 years old, or maybe just after, he was expelled from Smyrna. The rabbis of Smyrna were worried about his heretical behavior. They didn't excommunicate him like Spinoza would be excommunicated because Spinoza made intellectual arguments, was happy to be excommunicated in Amsterdam almost at the same time. But he was clearly a problem for the community. They were worried what their Muslim neighbors would say. They were worried the influence he would have on younger children. And so he left. 
And he wandered around the Ottoman Empire. We know that he went to Salonika, which was a very great center of Jewish life until the Holocaust. And later on, he'll come back to Salonika. And then he goes to Egypt, and he goes to the land of Israel. And he studies with Kabbalists, especially in Egypt. And then he goes to Yerushalayim to try to find the cure for his problems. He knows there's something amiss. And just like today, where if you have a problematic child, where do you send them? You send them to the Hebrew University. You hope a year in, a year in Israel will solve the problem, right? So Israel is full of all the Meshuggah kids from Argent County. So the fact is that he goes, he goes to Yerushalayim, and what does he do in Yerushalayim? He seeks a cure. Now, what does it mean he seeks a cure? See, today, we go for cures also. If someone is... Uh, depressed or unhappy or has psychological problems, they go to a psychiatrist. In the pre-modern period, the equivalent of the psychiatrist was the rabbinic faith healer, the person who was knowledgeable on your metaphysical spiritual condition. And the idea was that every one of us had a root. The soul we came from came from a special family of souls, and all the souls went back originally to Adam and Eve. And if you could find the right person who knew the root of your soul, like finding the right wire in the wiring, right, he could correct what was wrong and give you cure, give you a kind of relief. And Shabtai Tzvi went around Eretz Israel looking for relief. Unfortunately, in this first phase, he didn't find relief. And he continued to be plagued by visions and by manic depressive states and by a new sense of messianic status, that somehow his trauma, his dreams, his visions, his experience was not a personal subjective phenomenon, but it was symptomatic of a more cosmic event, which was the messianic. Also during this period, he starts to do further things that are antinomian. Do all of you know that word? Nomos in Greek means law, so antinomos. Antinomian means against the law, to break the law. When Jesus plucks an ear of corn on Shabbat and says the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, not the Sabbath over the Son of Man, that's antinomian. He's breaking the law. But now Shabtai Tzvi begins to see in the breaking of the law and his own messianic destiny a connection. That the breaking of the law by Shabtai Tzvi is not antinomianism in the ordinary sense of an ordinary person who does something he shouldn't do, right? Eats on Yom Kippur, whatever. Does something he shouldn't do. Now he starts to formulate a theory that his breaking the law has a deeper significance. And this will be called by the Sabbateans in time salvation through sin. Salvation through sin. I'll come back to talk about that in more detail. The rabbis of Egypt and the rabbis of Jerusalem are also puzzled by all this business. And so they expel him finally in the, 15, in the 1650s, and he wanders around some more. He goes back home, and he marries again. And this time, he marries a very strange thing. He marries a prostitute, like one of the prophets. Remember? Hosea marries a prostitute, because the prostitute is the people of Israel. And the prophet marrying the prostitute is like God coming to the people of Israel to redeem them. So now Shabtai Tzvi has the model. The model is of redemption. He's going to go marry a prostitute. 
The prostitute is the symbol of corruption of the world as it exists, right? What's a clearer uh, symbol? And again, his messianism is at work. He's going to redeem her. He's going to bring her uh, to a different state of holiness. He marries her. This marriage he consummates. She obviously had a little more experience. And uh, he travels to Constantinople, and he travels around uh, the empire. And he returns to the Middle East to finally, in 1664, he comes back to Eretz Israel. 1664, he's 38 years old. And now something remarkable happens, ladies and gentlemen. I can't tell you anything but the story. I can't tell you why. I can't give you an explanation. I can't uh, psychoanalyze. We, the evidence we have is very limited. But I want to tell you the story because it's the turning point of the story. He's still obsessed with these visions, with the manic depression. He's not sure that he's the Messiah, though he's been acting in messianic ways. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. He's all this confusion. And so he comes again to Eretz Israel and he seeks someone to help him. And they say to him in Yerushalayim, go to Gaza. There was a Jewish community in Gaza. And there is a prophet in Gaza, a man who was known as a spiritual prophet, a healer, a man who had special wisdom, who knew the soul's roots of his uh, colleagues, of his disciples. And his name was Nathan of Gaza. <laughs> Shabtai Tzvi comes to Gaza in 1660, late 1664, early 1665, and he meets Nathan of Gaza. And then an extraordinary thing by tradition happens. Nathan of Gaza falls on the ground and says to him, I have seen in my visions, in my dreams, that you are the Messiah of Israel. Why, how, they'd never met before. Perhaps Nathan had seen him in Yerushalayim from a distance, like Paul may have seen Jesus from a distance. We don't know. All I know is that he confirms the idea that Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah. Now, you can imagine what happens when that occurs. The Jewish world goes into a frenzy, and Nathan of Gaza immediately calls for a universal Jewish act of redemption. First of all, he sends out a call to all the cities of the Jews in the Holy Land, and he tells them all to do tshuva, perfectly kosher, right? Do tshuva, do repentance. He tells them all to pray, say certain kinds of prayers, and everybody is ecstatic the Messiah has come. Now, all of a sudden, without a telegraph, without a telephone, without an iPod, without CNN, the news flashed all over the world, all over the Jewish world. And we know that the community in Amsterdam and the community in Krakow and the community that was growing up, that had grown up in Antwerp, all of them were seized with the idea that he's really the Messiah. And we see all over the Jewish world people starting to make preparation to do what? To go to the land of Israel because the redemption is at hand. And Shabtai Tzvi and Nathan of Gaza are not charlatans in the normal sense, right? There's not the PTL club. These are people who sincerely believe this is the messianic moment. And as proof that this is the messianic moment, they announce that at the end of 1665, a year later, Shabtai Tzvi is going to go to Constantinople, Istanbul, the capital of the Ottoman Empire. He's going to take the crown off the caliph, and he's going to put it on his own head as a sign that the redemption has occurred, right? The caliph's rule is over. The rule of the Jewish autonomous messianic period has begun. True to his word, 
1665, December 30th, according to tradition, he gets on a ship. And he sails from Eretz Yisrael towards Istanbul. The caliph had had advance word. Obviously, they have their own spy network, you might say. They know what's going on in their empire. And they intercept him, and they put him in a prison. In a and the uh, Hasidim of Shabtai Tzvi, the disciples of Shabtai Tzvi, call it Migdalos, the Tower of Strength, based on the biblical phrase. So you might say he's the first wizard of O's. Now, the fact is that they're not sure. The caliph isn't sure. And for a year, a whole year, he questions him. He sends people to question him. Rabbis come. It's an extraordinary business. After a year, after a year, the caliph decides he's a fraud. And he says to him, Shabtai, we're going to give you a choice. You can consist insist on your being the Messiah, and if so, we're going to cut your head off. Not a very good choice. On the other hand, if you're willing to become a Muslim, I'll give you a pension. So naturally, being smart enough, being a Jewish boy, takes the pension. So he takes the pension, and he becomes Mehmed Effendi. That's his name, his Muslim name, Mehmed Effendi. In 1666, he converts to Islam. Now, this, ladies and gentlemen, you would think would be the end of the story, but it's the beginning. What's the, the beginning of? It's the beginning of the messianic, mystical, Sabbatean theology and the formation of a new group in Jewish history of Sabbateans. Most Jews were rational enough, traditional enough, whatever, to see that this didn't make a lot of sense, that the Messiah would become a Muslim. And so they rejected it. They said, this is no longer our business. And they were very embarrassed. If you go to Europe, as you make, I know all of you must travel widely, you go to Europe, go to the Jewish communities and ask to see the day book, the community records from the year 1665-66, and almost without exception, you'll find out that the pages have been torn away. Why? Because after the collapse, after the conversion, the obvious fraud, the communities were so embarrassed, they didn't want it written that Rabbi Shmuel sold his possessions to go to Eretz Israel because Shabtai Tzvi, the Messiah, had come. Chaim had sent tzedakah because the Messiah had come, right? Everybody's embarrassed. But there was a small group that continued to believe in Shabtai Tzvi. The most famous was perhaps a man named Cardoza, who was an ancestor of the Cardoza, who was the Supreme Court Justice in the United States. You should also know that Louis Brandeis, he comes from a Sabbatean family. So if you have young people and you'd like them to reach the Supreme Court, you should make them Sabbateans. <laughs> the fact is that our two great justices were both from Sabbatean families, a curious thing. Now, what did they say? What did Cardoza say? What did the people who believed in Shabtai Tzvi say? What did Nathan of Gaza say? What did Shabtai Tzvi say? Now here they come back to that Lurianic theory we talked about last time, and I told you tonight at the beginning there would be the important role for that Messianic theory. Now they said the following. All of the Jewish people, according to Luria's theory, had to lift the sparks. Remember, we said last time, if everybody in the room, there are 50 of us, everybody has 2% of the obligation. If all of us did it, we would bring 100%, okay? Now Shabtai Tzvi and his disciples, Nathan of Gaza, Cardoza, Herrera, added a little wrinkle. They said, there is still work for the Messiah to do. In the Lurianic 
theory, there was no work for really for the Messiah to do. He was more like a cherry on the Sunday. We bring the Messiah, and he comes as a symbol. But now they said there is a messianic secret that Luria didn't give out. What was the secret? That when all the sparks of holiness have been gathered by the rest of Israel, right? You've all done your work. There's still work to be done. But Israelites, Jews, cannot do that work. Why? Because remember the theory. Everything in the world only exists because it has a spark of holiness. Remember the great chain of being, the sparks of holiness. Now, we're not the only people in the world. There are Gentiles in the world. After all, there's Shabbos Goyim. You have to have <laughs> Gentiles. So the question is, what are the Gentiles doing? Where are their sparks? How are you going to redeem them? After all, there must be sparks of holiness in the Gentile world or it couldn't exist. That's part of the theory. Now the answer is, if an ordinary Jew went into the world of Islam, what would happen? They would be overwhelmed by the pollution. They would be overwhelmed by the idolatry. They would be overwhelmed by the lack of sanctity. So the ordinary Jew is blocked from redeeming the sparks of holiness in the world of the Gentiles. But the Messiah who has a great soul, totally different soul than you and me, has spiritual power to resist these forces. So when the Messiah comes, his role is to go into the Gentile world to liberate the sparks that only he can liberate. And the Gentile world won't overcome him, won't take his soul and destroy it. That's why it's necessary for the Messiah to become a Murano. Right, a Murano. He's a Muslim on the outside and a Jew on the inside. These are kind of Jewish M&Ms, right? But now, not Christian on the outside and Jewish on the inside, but Muslim on the outside and Jewish on the inside. Moreover, these people have to do something like Shabtai Tzvi does. And the sign, and this is where we come back to the expression I used earlier, salvation through sin, that the salvific aspect, the Incarnation of the redemptive phenomenon, the fact that we live in redeemed time, is evidenced by what? That the halakha, the mitzvot, no longer apply. The Torah and its regimen is at an end. The Messiah has ended the old law. Therefore, Shabtai Tzvi says, when I break the law, it's not because I want to break the law because I'm lazy. I want to break the law because it's convenient. I, I break the law as a ritual. The breaking of the law is a ritual, just like keeping of the law is a ritual. A ritual. And in fact, Shabtai Tzvi formulated a blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who permits the forbidden. In other words, before you do something that's inappropriate, you make a bracha. Because the ritual is what is required as a symbol of the new era. Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who permits the forbidden. See, the difference between all of us and Sabbateans is we don't make the bracha. <laughs> right? That's why we're not Sabbateans. The Sabbatean does the avera, the, the act, as a ritual. And, of course, the most dramatic symptom of the new law is sexual freedom. If you were older, I would explain that to you. But... What you need to know is that the mark of the Sabbateans par excellence, the ritual par excellence, or two, is one, that they have a festival day on Yom Kippur, 
and a festival day on Tisha B'Av because the Messiah has come. So redemption is at hand. There's no more exile. And Tisha B'Av, there's no more destruction of the temple, redemption in the form of Messiah. And the big night for the Sabbateans is called the Night of the Lambs. They throw their keys in a hat and they have an orgy. Now, of course, given the demographic crisis in Jewish life, that might be a better idea than a community scholar. But the fact is, <laughs> but, you know, but the fact is that this notion of sexual freedom was the mark of Sabbateanism. And you see that even Shabbatri says that. He says to the women in a famous sermon, I am going to liberate you from the rule of your husbands, and I'm going to liberate you from the taint of Adam's sin meaning the corruption that came. You won't be under the control of your husbands anymore, which is a sign of the old law, the old regimen, right? So that the freedom of the new law will also be a kind of freedom from the old uh, hierarchical arrangements, sexual arrangements, and so on. Now, these things are pretty strange, ladies and gentlemen, but they took root in a small group. And Shabtai Tzvi's fourth wife was the daughter of a rabbi in Salonika. In 1683, Shabtai Tzvi died in 1676, but it didn't end. In 1683, his wife, now his widow, his fourth wife his, and widow, said that her brother somehow was an incarnation or a spirit of Shabtai Tzvi, her younger brother. She's the daughter of a famous rabbi in Salonika. The brother comes forward and says, yes, I have some deep spiritual connection to the messianic perfection. I need to make you all Muslims. 380 Jewish families in Salonika converted to Islam. And they took the name Dunmeh, the believers. And the Dunmeh continued, continued to this day. If you go to Istanbul, look for the most beautiful apartment houses. They're very affluent. They've been very successful in Turkey. And look, just stand outside, look for small, ugly people coming in and out. Those are the Dunmeh. And the reason they're small and ugly is that they've been intermarrying for 400 years now. Uh, in a very small circle. Now, the fact is, that was not the end of the story, though. That's, again, in a sense, only the beginning of the story. The story gets even more bizarre. So we have a group of small sectarian Sabbatean believers at the end of the 17th century, and you see what it does. The reason it's significant for you and me is not because it's a curious story and it shows that Jews can be very curious in what they believe and people can be irrational. No, no, no. It's because this corrupts, this corrupts the two crucial aspects of the tradition that the Jewish people need for survival. They need a healthy messianism, right, a healthy messianism, and they need a healthy mysticism, which had been made part of the fabric of Jewish life by Luria. And now Shabtai Tzvi comes and he perverts both the messianic and the mystical. So the Jewish people looking for a refuge, looking for something to give life meaning, looking for a way to meet and explain the crisis since the Spanish expulsion, why they're in exile, how God is working, find that it's all been corrupted. And in addition, thirdly, the law is corrupted. They become antinomian. Rather than mitzvot and Torah, you get sexual impropriety, licentiousness. You get all kinds of bizarre behavior. And not only is it bizarre, it becomes the ritual. Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who permits the forbidden. So the law, messianism, and mysticism are all polluted by the end of the 17th century. And the external world is pressing in on us with blood libels and pogroms. It's the worst time in Jewish history 
in the late Middle Ages, early modern period, till the Holocaust. But it's not the end. A few years after the death of Shabtai Tzvi, and there are many things, the beliefs of, the, of Shabtai Tzvi and his community are really extraordinary. A half century later, another man comes forward, and his name is Jacob Frank. Jacob Frank was born in 1726, and he died in 1791, almost an exact contemporary of the Gra, the Vilna Gaon, and an exact, a younger contemporary of the Baal Shem Tov, who was born in 1700 and died in 1760. Jacob Frank brings this story to its denouement, brings it to its ultimate crisis. Frank was born in Poland to a middle-class family, but early in his life, he had contacts already with Sabbateans. He was drawn to the Sabbateans. He received a basic Jewish education, but unlike Shabtai Tzvi, he certainly was not a budding Talmud Chacham. He wasn't a Kabbalist of any distinction. He seems to have made his uh, living in trading in old clothes, which was a common uh, Jewish business, and maybe in secondhand jewelry. But the trade gave him the opportunity to travel. And when as he traveled, one of the places he went to was Smyrna, another place was Salonika, and there he met Sabbateans. And he started to be interested in their beliefs and to hear stories about uh, their notion that the Messiah would return. He married a woman who seemed to have been connected somehow uh, with the Sabbateans. It's not clear if she came from a Sabbatean family or just had a, members of her family were Sabbateans. But the fact is he, by marriage, is linked to the Sabbatean community. In 1752, he comes back from some of his trips back to Podolia, parts of Poland, and there he announces that he is the reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi. When things go bad, they really go bad. <laughs> and he is even more I don't know the right word, more perverse than is Shabtai Tzvi. I won't go into detail. It's, uh, you're all too young. It's inappropriate in public, especially with Marsha here. I can't tell you these things. But the fact is that there's terrible orgiastic behavior among the Frankists, especially with Frank and his sister and his daughter. He calls his kingdom now the kingdom of Esau, which is a means, again, bringing in the outside. And he converts as part of his messianic drama, not only to perversion, licentiousness, he becomes a Catholic. And it's the same theory. If the Messiah has to redeem the world, well, Shabtai Tzvi redeemed the sparks of holiness from the Muslims. But what happens to all the Catholics, the Christian souls? Where are their sparks? So now the reincarnated Shabtai Tzvi has to convert again, become a converso again, a Murano again, go out to the Christian world and redeem the sparks of holiness among the Christians, right? Shabtai Tzvi in his first incarnation redeems the sparks in Islam. Now Jacob Frank redeems the sparks in Catholicism. Of course, you can imagine this created an incredible stir. The rabbis tried to do everything they could to uh, denounce him. But he was backed by the Catholic Church because he had converted, and they thought this was the beginning of a mass conversion. He tried very hard to uh, get the church to support public disputes, like in the earlier Middle Ages, disputations 
which he succeeded in. There's even a theory that the Baal Shem Tov, the, fa the founder of Hasidism, participated in one of these famous uh, disputations in 1759. But whatever it was, the fact is that this corruption was enormously deep. And just as in the uh, 1683, hundreds of Jews became Sabbateans, now in the 1750s, hundreds of Polish Jews became Frankists. So you can imagine a catastrophe. Here we have a situation where the most perverse behavior in the history of the Jewish people has become accepted by a small group in the midst of Eastern European Jewry, and it brings to the deep crisis Again, the law, because they're all antinomian in an extreme form, especially regarding sexual behavior. They're all perverted the messianic, because Jacob Frank is hardly the messiah of Israel. And they pervert the Lurianic doctrine to justify the conversion as raising sparks. So these phenomena, these elements of Frankism, compound the corruption that had been introduced by Shabtai Tzvi. And it leads the Jewish people, as I say, to the bottom point, spiritually, the bottom point of modern Jewish history before the Shoah is undoubtedly in the 1750s with Frankism. Now, why is this important? It's important, as I say, because it perverts all these doctrines, and it's important for another very good reason. Next time, we'll talk about the response to this. The Jewish people had, thankfully, a response. What was the response to all of this strange business, these ma'asim zarim, these sexual exploitations, this antinomianism, this crisis of faith? The antinomianism, the messianism, the mysticism all found an antidote. The antidote is called Hasidism. The reason Hasidism is historically important, ladies and gentlemen, is because the Hasidim, the founder of Hasidism, the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, died in 1760, and his leading disciple, the Magad of Mezrich, who died in 1772, had an answer to this. And the Jewish people who are reeling from a spiritual malaise, vertigo, an impossible spiritual and public situation because of the persecutions on the outside and the disarray on the inside had an answer. And the answer came in the Baal Shem Tov and Hasidism. And that's the historic importance of Hasidism. And it therefore is not an accident that Hasidism will take root, will be a successful antidote. It will take root in exactly those places, especially where Sabbateanism and Frankism were strongest. And by the middle of the 19th century, about half the Jewish world of Eastern Europe will be Hasidim. Many of you probably are children or children's children of even as late as the beginning of the 20th century, Hasidic families in Eastern Europe, right? You probably have traditions in your family. My great-grandfather was a Vishnitsa. My great-grandfather was a Munkisha. My great-grandfather was a Lubavitcher. How many of you have such traditions, right? Oh, well, okay. Only a few. Usually it's more. That means uh, somewhere between New York and here you've lost a lot of tradition. Uh, and the fact is that this is not, of course, the Yekas don't have this tradition. It's not the Yekas are, that's why you have to suspect their bloodlines. But the fact is that in Eastern Europe, half the community or so were Hasidim. And they were the people who supplied an answer. And what the answer was and why it was an answer and how it was an answer, and it was directly an answer. That is say you had a problem, and the answer spoke to the problem. It was like a hand in a glove we'll talk about next time. So I thank you very much.